Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone requires assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce the moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Preventing, Managing, and Treating Infection in Adults Living with Cancer. Um, this really could not be a more timely subject in, um, to, us, to us to offer today. Um, and it's something that I know many of you um, are thinking about a great deal. Um, and today's program is supported by Pfizer, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have over 210 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, the Dominican Republic, India, Kenya, Malaysia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So this is a global call, and we are delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. Dr. Crawford is the George Barth Gella Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine, lead PI of NCTN LAPS grant, Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. Crawford will be addressing overview of infection, its prevention, management, and treatment in people living with cancer, understanding drug-resistant infection and cancer, cause and risk factors for infections, why people living with cancer may be more prone to infection, know your risk of infection, guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Crawford. Carolyn, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, and thank, thanks to all of you for joining us. Uh, as Dr. Mesner said, I'm a medical oncologist um, involved with the care of patients, predominantly lung cancer patients. Um, and many of them have to deal with infections, and so I'll be talking about this really from the perspective of the cancer patient and, I guess, the uh, medical oncologist. Um, but fortunately, we're joined by a multidisciplinary team, uh, including an infectious disease expert and a pharmacist who can uh, correct me on things I may not have exactly right, and will certainly be uh, more informative on some areas than I could be. So, um, but let me start by saying, you know, what is an infection? Well, an infection is, is something that occurs when a microorganism or a germ enters a person's body and causes some form of harm. We usually think of uh, the germs or microorganisms in categories like bacteria, uh, which are single-cell organisms which lead to urinary tract infections and pneumonias and other bacterial infections often treated with antibiotics, and you'll hear more about uh, antibiotics subsequently. And then viruses, the second group, and these are bits of DNA that uh, invade our bodies and uh, get into individual cells and transform those cells, causing viral infections. And obviously, uh, unfortunately, a great example of this is COVID-19 uh, that we're all dealing with. Um, and I think it's this era of COVID, which actually has helped us in many ways because it's really shed an important light on the importance of infection in, in all of us and that we're all at risk for infection 
uh, whether they're fully healthy or not. And then a third group is uh, fungal infections, and uh, those infections can be somewhat common, such as oral thrush that babies or patients may get with uh, diabetes or with cancer on steroids, uh, to more uh, rare fungal infections that occur only in very immunocompromised uh, people, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So fortunately, we're protected from infection uh, in a number of ways. There are a number of barriers we have. We have skin as a barrier to infection, our respiratory tract from our nose and throat down in, into our lungs has a number of defense mechanisms to protect us from inhaling uh, infections. Uh, the GI tract from the mouth really to the rectal area um, has protective linings uh, throughout that help protect us from uh, the entry of bacteria, which normally live in the, in the GI tract but normally don't invade it. And then obviously the, the GU system, bladder, uh, vagina, prostate, where there's some potential portal of entry for infection. So these are all barriers that help protect us normally, but they can all be injured uh, in one way or another that could increase that potential risk for infection. Uh, and then we have our immune system, and our immune system uh, is quite important in that uh, we have, as I like to think about it, two major groups of immune-fighting cells. We have what we call neutrophils, which are the bacteria that in particular are very important in defense against uh, bacterial infection. And then we have lymphocytes and a lot of different types of lymphocytes, but in general they're there to help us form antibodies against uh, uh, infection uh, and to provide some host defense. And it's really the lymphocytes that get injured in immunocompromised states you hear so much about uh, that make people more susceptible, particularly to viral infections, uh, bacterial and fungal infections. So our strategies really involve vaccination that you'll hear more about in terms of trying to prevent, uh, improve our resistance to uh, certain types of infections, prophylaxis, which could be an antibiotics, for example, to try to reduce risks of certain types of infection, or active treatment uh, of the infection when it occurs by early recognition and appropriate uh, medical treatment. Um, so why is it that cancer patients are more subject to infection? Well, I think that really varies with the type of uh, cancer the patient has. If they have a solid tumor, such as a lung cancer or breast cancer, they might be in one category of risk. But there are also hematologic malignancies, blood disorders like leukemia, lymphoma, where not only are they at risk because of the cancer of the blood, they're at risk because that compartment, that blood system, is very important in immune defense. Uh, the lymphocytes and things I was talking about. And then, obviously, it's very important in terms of what treatment patients may be undergoing that might influence risk. For example, surgery itself, if a patient's having surgery, you're going to cut through the skin, potentially introduce risk of infection, um, no matter what type of surgery is being done. So that's a risk. And then there are types of treatments we have. Chemotherapy, classically, these are medicines that attack the cancer, but they're not totally specific, so they affect normal cells, and in particular uh, might affect those neutrophils I was talking about, the white blood cells that uh, are so important to infection, to reducing infection. And they can also affect the mucosal membranes that line our gastrointestinal tract, so if they're injured, it's easier for, uh, for bacteria to get through the 
mucosal membrane, and cause infection. Uh, we have, in addition to chemotherapy, though, we have targeted treatments, which are a little bit more specific for the cancer with a little bit less risk of those injuries. And then we have immunotherapy that you're hearing a lot about these days, which boosts the body's immune system to attack the cancer or uh, whatever it might be. And those uh, agents don't carry the same risk of increasing the risk of infection, but sometimes as a complication of those immunotherapies, patients require steroid medicines or other things that may make them more immunocompromised. So uh, unfortunately, all our cancer treatments come with it some potential risk from low to high of enhancing the, the, the potential risk of infection. Um, and the other thing that needs to be said is the cancer doesn't occur in a vacuum. Patients uh, are often older with cancer, and they may be at increased risk because of a declining immune function. But in particular, they may also have comorbidities, other conditions that might make them more susceptible to infection, whether it's diabetes, whether it's chronic pulmonary disease, whether it's some other issue. So it's really uh, important to view the risk of infection in the context of the overall uh, individual. Uh, and again, very important in terms of the treatment, is the treatment active or is this the treatment that was taken two or three years ago and now the patient's uh, in a long-term survivorship where the risk may be significantly less of infection than a patient on active treatment with cancer. So uh, in, in terms of what can be done in terms of active therapy, uh, patients are about to enter active treatment with cancer. Obviously, working with their primary care provider and oncologist, they'll want to update their vaccine uh, schedule, make sure they're up to date on their vaccines. Depending on the treatment, they may be candidates for prophylaxis with antibiotics. Um, and if they're going on treatments that suppress the blood cells, particularly the neutrophil counts, the patients may be candidates either for antibiotics as a preventive strategy, or they might be candidates to take a medicine that will stimulate the body's white blood cells, particularly the neutrophils, to recover faster after chemotherapy to reduce the risk of infection. So there are a number of different strategies, and which is appropriate will really depend upon the particular setting that the patient is in uh, and the treatment they're undergoing. But as a general rule, what can you do um, as a cancer patient or a cancer survivor or as a family member um, or friend or loved one? Well, clearly what we've learned in the COVID era is important for all of us. Hand washing, very important so we don't introduce infectious risk to ourselves by touching something that may be contaminated and then touching our mouths or uh, poten potentially ingesting um, unwanted bacteria. So hand washing, very important. And masks and, so and uh, social distancing, again, to decrease the risk of uh, airborne infection for all of us. The clean surface areas, bathrooms, kitchens, to avoid um, sharing drinking glasses, utensils, um, not taking antibiotics when they're not prescribed. So one would think if you're at risk of infection, you're going to think, well, I need to be taking antibiotics. But as you'll hear, taking antibiotics that aren't helpful will actually increase your risk of uh, uh, antibiotic resistance. And then very importantly, and I think some of our patients think they should just stay home and uh, protect themselves in that way, you should maintain an active lifestyle. Exercise is quite important eating a balanced diet, equally important, 
And both of those things strengthen your immune system. So, so be active, take these precautions, but, but, but don't shelter yourself unnecessarily. Now, if you have um, concerns about infection, it's very important for early recognition. So if you have a rash or redness in a particular area, if, if your arm feels warm or swollen, um, if you have fever, all of these might potentially be signs of infection. And I think it's important to bring that to the attention of your primary care provider and or oncologist at the earliest possible uh, time. We do have a lot of advances, as uh, Dr. Messner was talking about, in terms of telehealth, telemedicine, all of which uh, have advanced significantly during the COVID era. But I think uh, it's quite important to know when you can just send a message and when you really need to make a call. And clearly, if you're worried about uh, an infection, and in particular, if you're on active treatment, that you may be at particularly high risk of a low blood count or something that might require hospitalization, then you, you don't want to wait uh, on a message that might not get answered for 24 or 48 hours. You want to make sure you contact your office directly for your PCP or oncologist uh, so they'll know um, how to deal with that and how to advise you and how soon you need to get attention. Um, in more general ways, and clearly if you're thinking about vaccinations or you've read things about COVID or other things and things that aren't immediately important, then writing those questions down, sending them as a list to your primary care provider, oncologist in advance of meeting would be helpful, and certainly having that list in front of you when you speak with them will be important. So I'm going to stop there because we have two other excellent speakers to fill in a lot more detail than I've pr presented to you, but I did want to give you an overview of how I see this as a very important problem and a very important two-way street between the providers caring for you and your and you as a patient and your family, I guess a three-way street, um, to make sure everybody's on board and uh, doing all we can to reduce this problem of infection, particularly in the current era that we live in. So well, Dr. Thank Mitchell, you so stop there. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Crawford. That was really outstanding and really set the context for today's program and uh, um, so many important issues. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Michael Sadlin. Dr. Sadlin is Assistant Associate Professor of Medicine, Associate Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases, while Cornell Medicine, Associate Editor General of Antimicrobial Chemotherapy, Antimicrobial Resistance. And Dr. Sadlin will be addressing what is AMR, or Antimicrobial Resistance, Questions to ask your healthcare team about antimicrobial resistance, signs of infection, parts of the body most likely to get infection, watching for and preventing infection in people living with cancer, and how drug-resistant infections may be treated at home. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sadlin. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's wonderful to get invited to, to talk to all of you, and I thank you so much for the kind introduction. So uh, as was said, I'm an infectious diseases specialist, and I primarily uh, uh, help uh, oncologists like Dr. Crawford uh, prevent, diagnose, manage, and treat infections uh, in patients with cancer, who many of whom, uh, as was discussed, have compromised immune systems. So first thing you should know is that 
Dr. Crawford has similar colleagues to myself uh, where he treats patients with cancer and, and, and most uh, oncologists uh, have infectious diseases specialists that work with them to help them. Uh, so we are all in this as a team and uh, we, uh, as was said, infections uh, do occur more frequently in patients with cancer, but we have a team of people including uh, not only oncologists and infectious disease doctors, but pharmacists uh, who can, can really help uh, and, and lower the risk of infection so that, you know, you or your loved ones are, are the least likely to develop uh, an infection or a bad consequence of an infection. So I'm going to st first focus on antimicrobial resistance. You may hear this term abbreviated AMR. What is it? Well, Antimicrobial resistance is really when a germ or a microbe that causes infection changes itself so that typical anti-infectives or antibiotics no longer work when they are given to treat that infection. Um, and the resistance is actually a, a part of that microbe. Um, uh, and um, we measure this in a laboratory. So we will get specimens from patients and we will try to culture out, uh, say, a bacteria or sometimes it's a virus or a fungus. And we see in the laboratory whether the antibiotics that we typically use will prevent growth of that microbe. And when we see that it doesn't prevent growth of that microbe, we call that resistance. And resistance most commonly occurs with bacteria, but it can also occur with viruses like influenza or fungi. Um, so what are some examples? So uh, one example of an antimicrobial resistant infection would be, for example, a urinary tract infection, which is most commonly caused by a bacteria called E. coli. And we see that the E. coli no longer responds well to typical antibiotics that are given for a urinary tract infection. This can also occur in bloodstream infections where we have medicines and antibiotics that we typically give for people who are very sick and in the hospital. Um, and of course, sometimes we worry that the uh, uh, germs that are causing the infection are resistant to those antibiotics. It can even occur with viral infections. There is resistance that we sometimes see uh, with viruses like herpes virus or influenza to commonly use treatment. And resistance in some way is inevitable and almost every antibiotic that has ever been approved and given to patients, we have seen some germs that have developed resistance to that antibiotic. Now that doesn't mean we have no hope. You know, it's a minority sometimes and sometimes it's a majority, but we typically, uh, it doesn't mean that every germ has developed resistance to that antibiotic, but we do see it from time to time. Um, uh, let's talk about why antimicrobial resistance is important, and I'm going to talk about kind of a case-by-case -case approach in different situations where having an antimicrobial resistant infection, uh, it, you know, is not good for a patient, particularly a patient with cancer. So there are certain types of infections where we often are not able to get a sample from the patient to diagnose exactly what is causing the infection. For example, a pneumonia. Sometimes it's very difficult to get a good sputum specimen from a patient or look in the lungs to see exactly what's going on. So what our doctors will do uh, is treat empirically. What empirically means is that we give an antibiotic that we think is most likely to treat the bacteria that's causing the infection, knowing that we may not know exactly what the bacteria is. And so the problem is if uh, there's a germ that's resistant to the typically used antibiotics, that patients, particularly those with cancer, may not respond. Their infection may not get better and that puts patients in a, in a precarious position. There are other infections like urinary tract infections, for example, where we do get a sample of the urinary tract, particularly in a patient with cancer, and we'll usually find the organism that's causing the infection. 
And sometimes, due to antimicrobial resistance, we will find that the patient has an organism that we don't really have any good pill antibiotics to use for treatment. And that would require that the patient then comes into the hospital, gets an intravenous line put in, and gets put on intravenous antibiotics, which is inconvenient, uh, costly, and of course is not ideal when typically we should be able to use a pill to treat an infection like a urinary tract infection. Very rarely, particularly in patients with cancer, maybe who have receive intensive chemotherapy that causes them not to have the neutrophils that Dr. Crawford discussed, patients will present to the hospital with something called sepsis. And sepsis is when you have an infection that is severe enough that it really damages some of your vital organs. And this is an emergency, which is why patients uh, who have fever, uh, who do not have uh, uh, sufficient neutrophils, uh, should call their doctor immediately uh, when they develop signs or symptoms of infection or a fever. And when patients come to the emergency room with sepsis, we typically collect blood cultures, our cultures of the blood, so that in a couple of days we can figure out exactly what's going on with the patient. But we need to treat that patient immediately. So again, we pick antibiotics empirically, or we pick antibiotics before we actually know what's going on with the patient. And if we pick antibiotics that aren't effective because of antimicrobial resistance, then patients can get sicker. Um, Lastly, the worst case scenario is when we actually have infections caused by bacteria where we just have no antibiotics available to treat the patient. Thankfully, this is very rare, and we almost never see this. And we've been fortunate enough that over the last five to ten years, we've had a number of new antibiotics come to market uh, or been approved for use uh, so that this situation is very rare. And in fact, if you look at antimicrobial-resistant infections in general, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, estimates that about 2.8 million people are infected with antibiotic-resistant bacteria or fungi, and about 35,000 people will die as a result of this. And of course, many of these patients are patients with cancer. So that's the bad news. But what's the good news? There are things that we can do to lower these risks of being infected with antimicrobial-resistant bacteria. The first, as was discussed, is to recognize uh, when uh, somebody has signs or symptoms of infection. And a lot of the earlier we can get people into the medical care setting and try to diagnose what a, whether somebody has an infection or not and what the infection is caused by, what antibiotics can be used for those infections, the quicker we will be able to treat patients regardless of whether they have an antimicrobial resistant germ. So as was discussed before, we typically rely on fever as a reliable indicator of infection, but we should also know that some people, because of some, perhaps because of the medicines that they're on that might suppress their body's ability to mount a fever, may not necessarily present with fever. So somebody who develops severe fatigue, is unable to walk, is having difficulty breathing, isn't thinking clearly, these are all potential signs of infection and should be taken seriously uh, and your doctor or your healthcare provider should be called regardless of whether someone is having a fever. The other signs and symptoms that people have are typically correlated with, with the site of the infection in the body. So for example, if somebody has a pneumonia, typically they may present with cough, shortness of breath. Sometimes they have chest pain when they take a deep breath. Uh, people can present with skin infections where we typically see warm, hot, red, tender skin. They can present with things like bloodstream infections where they can be really sick and typically they have fever and shaking chills and really don't feel well. And of course, there are other infections like urinary tract infections and diarrheal infections that have typical signs or symptoms. Another important thing that we can do to lower the risk of antimicrobial resistance 
is to not take antibiotics when antibiotics won't help. And why is that important? Well, antimicrobial resistance is really driven by the use of antibiotics. So the more antibiotics we use, the more antimicrobial resistant germs we'll see. So it's incumbent upon uh, uh, patients and their healthcare providers then to be able to distinguish between what infections are being caused by viruses and what infections are being caused by bacteria. So I'll take sore throat as an example. 90% of sore throats in adults are caused by viruses and not bacteria. So for most sore throats, patients don't need antibiotics. However, particularly for a patient with cancer, it's important that you rule out that you're not one of the 10% of people who actually has a sore throat caused by a bacterial infection. And how do we do that? Well, it's important to tell your provider, come in to be seen, so that the provider can swab the back of your throat and rule out a bacterial infection. And then with confidence, uh, if, they, if you have a bacterial infection, then of course we can treat with antibiotics. But if you're the 90% of people who don't have a bacterial infection, then you don't need antibiotics. And you can take, so it's really um, important that you communicate openly with your providers, that you come in and be seen when you have signs or symptoms of infection. Like said, virtual visits can be helpful sometimes as a starter, but really if you have signs or symptoms of an infection, you really need to come in and see your provider and be evaluated. And we can take similar things for you know, urinary tract infections. We can get urine samples and look for signs and symptoms of infection. But the more that you interact with your providers and we can get samples from you to distinguish between a bacterial infection, which typically requires antibiotics, and a viral infection for which most antibiotics are not helpful, then the better we can treat you, we can treat you early, and we can prevent this overall problem of antimicrobial resistant infections. The other thing that can be very helpful, and I think will be discussed by Dr. Cabell, is vaccines. Some of these bacterial infections that we talk about can be prevented by vaccines. And the vaccines can prevent not only the uh, 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 infections that are susceptible to all the antibiotics that we have, but they can also prevent infections caused by antimicrobial resistant bacteria. So examples of this, for example, would be the pneumonia vaccine uh, 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 that uh, can be given to immunocompromised health to prevent what's the most common cause of pneumonia and the most common cause of sinusitis and the most common cause of ear infection which is the pneumococcus bacteria. Um, lastly, I figured I'd mention a little bit about uh, antimicrobial resistant germs and how they're spread among people in a household. So our bodies are full of bacteria. It's total normal, it's normal and healthy to actually have more bacterial cells than human cells. We live in constant contact with bacteria. And there may be people in a family who actually have an antimicrobial resistant bacteria living in their gut or living in their nose or their mouth that's not causing any infection at all. But if that patient actually, uh, uh, sometimes those patients can actually spread those antimicrobial resistant germs to people whose immune system are a little bit weaker, such as a patient with cancer. And so sometimes some of these antimicrobial resistant bacteria that we see are first acquired by a family member and then spread to a, uh, a, a person such as somebody with cancer who has a weakened immune system. So that can happen. And that's all the reason why it's important that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we uh, advocate for things like hand washing, uh, for disinfecting of surfaces, for not visiting people who are visibly sick, because although it may cause just a mild, uh, although a certain germ may just cause a very mild infection in somebody with a healthy immune system, it's possible that if they spread that infection to you, 
or a patient with cancer has a, who has a weak immune system, that person can get much sicker. Um, so those are um, kind of an overview, I think, of what antimicrobial resistance is, why it's important, and then knowing that there are things that we can do to prevent antimicrobial resistant infections. And with that, I'll, I'll stop and uh, uh, I look forward to uh, taking questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Settlin. That was really outstanding. Again, a wonderful um, overview of um, antimicrobial infections and what people can do and, um, and working with healthcare teams. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Charlene Claire Cable. And Dr. Cable is um, a pharmacist. She's a clinical pharmacy specialist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, the member of HOPA's Patient Outreach Committee. And uh, Dr. Kabal will be addressing the role of a pharmacist in preventing infections, vaccination and flu shots, working with your healthcare team to prevent your risk of infection, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cable. Thank you so much, Dr. Besner, for the uh, introduction. And I'm really honored to be included with Dr. Crawford and Dr. Statland to discuss this really important topic with you all. Um, and as Dr. Mesner mentioned, I am a clinical pharmacist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Um, my role is I specialize in treating and managing adult patients diagnosed with leukemia. And I'm really fortunate to interact with patients and caregivers, both in the clinic as well as the inpatient setting when they're admitted to the hospital. So one of my role as a clinical pharmacist is to make sure all of my patients are protected against infection, which often includes assessing for compliance and evaluating appropriateness of all preventative medications. Oftentimes, the medications that are prescribed to prevent infection often don't play well with other medications. So for example, an antifungal medication often prescribed to prevent infections includes a medication called posaconazole. This medication interacts with a lot of commonly prescribed medications, leading to potential side effects if those, that interaction is not appropriately managed. As a pharmacist in the clinic and in the hospital, I help to identify these potential drug interactions, and then I make recommendations with the team as part of a multidisciplinary approach um, to make sure that these interactions are managed in a safe manner. So therefore, it is really, really important for all cancer patients and caregivers to make sure that they are communicating with their healthcare team about any prescriptions or over-the-counter medications they're taking. Oftentimes, supplements you know, or um, prescription medications such as medical marijuana, turmeric, garlic, cinnamon, just really to name a few, can actually have very serious interactions with their medications, such as oral cancer drugs and our preventative therapies for infections. And this can lead to the risk of side effects and also potentially make other medications less effective. Um, so both Dr. Crawford and Dr. Satlin did an excellent job discussing the serious complications from infections. Um, and we do have a lot of measures to prevent infections. Um, as you've heard today, um, really to avoid crowded areas, making sure you're washing your hands frequently, avoiding touching your face and mucosal tissue like eyes and mouth, et cetera. And of course, avoiding any sick contacts is very important. Utilizing masks can be very, very helpful in preventing airborne viral infections such as COVID-19, which we've all been uh, accustomed to. 
As a cancer patient and a caregiver, your role really is to communicate with the team about any signs or symptoms of infection. Unfortunately, as you've heard, sometimes the only sign of infection can be a fever, and it is imperative your healthcare team is notified immediately if a fever occurs. Other signs of infection that were covered extensively already include rash, sometimes an area of skin with redness or maybe it might be hot to the touch, diarrhea, fever, chills, even muscle aches and pains, runny nose, cough, shortness of breath, pain with urination, and abdominal pain could all be potential signs of infection. There are many, many more symptoms that we haven't covered, so it's important to really keep that open line of communication with your healthcare team. Um, and it's important to discuss a plan of action with your doctor if you were to develop any of these signs or symptoms, even if they're in the middle of the night, you have a plan already in place of how you're going to address them. Another backbone of, of preventing infection is really compliance with vaccinations. So vaccine history is something that I actually assess in every single one of my cancer patients. And it really it is independent of what the blood work shows or even what the cancer diagnosis is. So we recommend um, and they highly encourage that all cancer patients receive the annual influenza vaccine. And this is often readily available at your local pharmacy. Even community centers can often schedule that, as well as your doctor's office. Patients age 65 and older should actually receive the higher dose influenza vaccine. And this is just due to the inability to mount a full immune response to the standard dose that we um, administer in patients under the age of 65. Fortunately, the CDC, or Center for Disease Control, has actually confirmed that it is safe to give the annual influenza vaccine with the COVID-19 vaccine, which is kind of a newer update. So transitioning to the COVID-19 vaccine, we have several on the market. We have the two doses of the Pfizer COVID vaccine, two doses of Moderna, and then the one dose of Johnson & Johnson. And this is recommended in all adult cancer patients. So the Pfizer COVID vaccine, as many of you are probably aware, are aware, it's administered two doses, with the second dose administered three weeks or 21 days later. The Moderna vaccine is also another two-dose series, with the second dose administered four weeks or 28 days later. And I did want to cover just briefly some of the new information that's coming out about the third dose, which is the third primary dose, or the booster shot. So the Federal Drug Agency, or FDA, and the Center for Disease Control, or CDC, do agree that the Pfizer COVID third vaccine and the booster vaccine are exa exactly the same thing. So what this means is that either dose that you receive, it is the same medication at the same dose. They are just called something different based off of the labeled indication. This is more of a legal reason rather than having it be an efficacy reason. So cancer patients who are determined to have a compromised immune system are eligible for that third primary Pfizer COVID vaccine four weeks following the second dose. In regards to the booster for the Pfizer COVID vaccine, that is recommended in all patients 65 years and older. If patients are under the age of 65, they uh, have determined that patients that are at high risk for severe COVID-19 infection are eligible to receive the booster shot. Essentially, any cancer patient falling under the age of 65 pretty much fall in this bucket. The Moderna COVID vaccine actually just received FDA approval for expanded access. 
for the third dose or the booster vaccine, very similar to the Pfizer COVID vaccine. This actually only happened last week on October 20th. The re recommendations for the Moderna COVID vaccine are the exact same for the Pfizer, with the exception that the primary third dose of the Moderna COVID vaccine must be administered six months following the second dose. Also on October 20th, the patients that received the first Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine are actually eligible for another single-dose booster administered at least two months after completion of the single-dose primary regimen. And this is in all patients age 18 and older. Just keep in mind, since this um, new FDA approval just came out October 20th, the CDC is still reviewing this information and have not put out formal recommendations um, within their parameters just yet. In regards to other vaccines that I like to cover with all cancer patients um, is one being the shingles vaccine. So we actually have a newer shingles vaccine on the market that's an inactive formulation. And this is approved in all patients age 50 and older, despite having a compromised immune system or not. And this is in stark contrast to the prior vaccine that's on the market um, called Zosavax. That's the live attenuated shingles vaccine. We do not typically recommend that in our compromised immune system patients. For the Shingrix or the, the inactivated shingles vaccine, we recommend um, the two doses and the second dose administered around two months um, after the first dose. Lastly, we do recommend the pneumococcal vaccine booster in all of our patients age 65 and older. There are certain situations where we may administer the pneumovax um, or the pneumococcal vaccine prior to the age of 65, and that's predominantly in patients that are at very high risk for pneumonia, for example, our transplant patients. And lastly, I just wanted to touch base on our use of telemedicine and telehealth visits, which has really expanded in the era of COVID-19 with a really great impact on our cancer patients. In my practice, we really have utilized uh, telemedicine visits in patients that may have a difficult time coming to a clinic visit or even as a touch point in between clinic visits just to make sure that everything is going well with their cancer treatment. It is really important uh, during these telemedicine visits to utilize video if that is possible. And this really allows the healthcare team to both see you and interact with you in a more personable way. I think there's a lot to be said about having kind of a human connection component. I think the video uh, portion of telemedicine visits really facilitates that in a really safe and convenient way in the era of COVID. Um, also, I think the visual component is very important, even when we're assessing potentially a sign of infection or a complication um, from infection treatment, um, or even ways that we were preventing infection. And um, as Dr. Satlin mentioned, of course, if you do have a sign or symptom of infection, it is very crucial to be seen in person. Um, so that's always something that we're, we would potentially not use our telemedicine or telehealth visits. Um, so I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm hoping I can answer any additional questions um, in the QA section. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cabell. That was really excellent. Just a wonderful presentation and a wonderful understanding for everybody of the really expanded role of the pharmacist and how much they can be of help to you. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, I just want to say a few words about um, cancer care services um, that are available to you um, before we move on. Um, so. Uh, cancer Care um, is a national organization that provides free programs and services 
to people coping with cancer and their loved ones. And um, we have a staff of about 40 master's level trained oncology social workers, and they're here to provide a number of services for you. We do have something called a HOPE line. Um, it's a number that you can call and speak with one of our oncology social workers and just get support with a question or concern you may have. We also offer online support groups. Um, we also have a case management staff, a large staff. For, for some reason, we don't have the resource you need. Um, our case management staff will work with you really virtually to get you to the, to the resource that you need and to be sure you have your, that need met. And we'll stay with you until that need is met. And many of you have issues around food insecurity, housing, all types of issues that are case management staff can assist you with. We also have a financial and co-payment assistance program. And our financial assistance program gives general financial assistance, and our co-pay foundation helps with some of the costs of your treatments. And those are much larger grants and many, very much needed. And there are many co-pay foundations as well. And I should mention that at the end of, of today's, well, actually tomorrow, you'll be receiving a survey monkey evaluation, and in that evaluation, we ask to evaluate the program, but we also um, will give you all the resources that we mentioned during the program with the phone numbers, websites, everything like that, so you'll have all that information. Um, we also have a number of community programs that we offer, and um, those are um, wellness circles and coping um, programs, and those might be of help to some of you, so you might want to look to them. They're national programs and they provide support as well. We do offer these workshops, about 75 per year, um, with expert speakers, and um, we also do have uh, publications as well. So that just gives you a thumbnail sketch now of the services we offer at Cancer Care. And now we're going to move on to our questions. I'm going to ask Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board. And um, I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Michelle will explain to you how to queue up the questions. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1. So this is a question um, for Dr. Crawford to start with. What types of infections are common in patients with pancreatic adenocarcinoma? Um, well, that's a good question. Thank you. So I think for the pancreatic cancer patients, they have several uh, risk factors. Many of them have undergone surgery, so there would be a risk of intra-abdominal infection related either to the surgery or to the location of the cancer. Uh, that might lead to intra-abdominal infection. They also um, are treated very commonly with chemotherapy, uh, and chemotherapy treatments can lower their white blood count, as I talked about, so their risk of, of um, neutropenia and neutropenic infections, uh, which include blood-borne infections such as sepsis. Um, they also, unfortunately, lose a lot of weight, and because of the weight loss, they're more prone to pneumonia. Um, among other infections. So I think abdominal infections uh, and pneumonia are particularly prominent in this population. And uh, careful follow-up in terms of blood counts and trying to minimize neutropenia. And in some settings, even the use of antibiotic uh, prophylaxis might be indicated, as well as potentially 
uh, the growth factors I was talking about to restore white cells faster. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Setland, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, yeah, no, that's a great overview of the different types of infections. I'd add one more thing that sometimes the, the cancer itself in the pancreas blocks drainage of the biliary system. And so sometimes uh, patients with pancreatic cancer can get infections of the biliary tract. And so sometimes they need some of our um, um, gastrointestinal doctors to put in stents to open up that biliary drainage so that it doesn't get infected. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. And um, another question. Um, this is for Dr. Satlin. I am vaccinated. What are some precautions I should take to still prevent getting an infection? Um, so I, I, I think that I'm going to assume that the vaccination refers to the COVID vaccine. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, all of the, so the COVID vaccine is, is definitely a great idea for all of our patients, no matter how weak their immune system is from cancer, because we know it will lower the risk that they get infected. Uh, for some patients who's, has, who have cancer, but their immune system is not particularly immunocompromised, um, they are much more likely to be protected by the vaccination. But even though the vaccine is a very good vaccine and very worthwhile, it's not perfect. So if you are living in areas where there is still a lot of COVID circulating, it is still a good idea to limit your exposure to COVID. And that would include if you're going indoors, making sure that you're wearing a mask, uh, not uh, visiting large groups of people indoors, uh, particularly if one of those, some of those people are sick. Um, so, uh, now, some of those requirements may lessen, uh, hopefully, as the numbers of people who are being infected and the transmission in the community becomes lower. But, you know, we are still, unfortunately, at least across the country, having 70-something thousand new cases a day. So it's still a good idea, particularly people for people with cancer, even if they are vaccinated, to remain vigilant and, uh, and, and take protective measures for themselves. And this is a question that does come up on some of our calls. I'm going to ask Dr. Salon if you could address this. Should I wear gloves while visiting the grocery store? I usually use hand sanitizer, but I am starting chemotherapy soon. Would gloves be safer? That's a great question. I don't actually recommend wearing gloves. Um, I think uh, carrying hand sanitizer with you and cleaning your hands frequently with hand sanitizer in a lot of ways is better than gloves. Uh, because you can continually clean the surface. The problem with wearing gloves is that uh, the gloves can get dirty and they can get infected with germs and those gloves can be put at all sorts of parts of your body. Whereas if you don't wear gloves and you, you know, have your bare hands, but you clean those hands frequently, I actually think that's safer. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so um, for Dr. Crawford, how long is risk of infection high after ending chemotherapy? The, um, well, the, the major risk for chemotherapy in terms of infection, particularly bacterial infection, is after the white blood count falls from chemotherapy because the chemotherapy is affecting not only the, the cancer, but it's affecting early bone marrow cells that would normally have led to uh, become fighting bacteria white blood cells. So that time period is generally, depending on the, the chemotherapy, that time period is generally one to two weeks. If you have something like leukemia where the bone marrow is impaired, then that may be several weeks before you get recovery from, uh, from the blood count. So that, that could be as high as four or five weeks. 
but it, it's going to be dependent on the type of cancer and the treatment. Now, once you're done with all treatment, assuming you have a, um, a solid tumor that you've been treated for, the white blood count should return, particularly the neutrophil count, within that time period of a few weeks. But patients still may be at some increased risk for infections for some time because the chemotherapy not only affects the the neutrophils, but also the lymphocytes, the immune cells, and they may take longer to recover. So I think patients, unfortunately, are at somewhat higher risk, for, perhaps for months, for uh, viral infections and other complications. Thank you. Um, There's a question I'm going to ask um, Dr. Cable if you could address this. If not, you'll let me know. Um, do you recommend taking probiotic capsules for good bacteria? How about probiotic-rich foods? This is an excellent question and one I get actually quite frequently. Um, we typically do not recommend probiotics if a patient is at very high risk for an infection, specifically, as Dr. Crawford mentioned, following chemotherapy when the white blood cell count is particularly low. Um, we, the thought process is there's a potential concern for that good bacteria that you're taking with a probiotic to potentially translocate, which means it can find its way from the GI tract into um, the bloodstream. Um, and there have been several case reports of that happening. Um, of course, that would be relatively rare and not something we would expect, but oftentimes um, the risk is there enough that we, we typically do not recommend it when, um, like I said, the white blood cell count is particularly low. In um, other scenarios where the white blood cell count is high and the risk for bacterial infection is not as high, um, probiotics could be potentially helpful. Um, oftentimes, I just recommend a good diet. Um, oftentimes, that can include even um, use of yogurt. Sometimes that is a natural way of restoring um, the, the gut flora that can be lost with uh, use of antibiotics. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and this is a question. Um, so this question for Dr. Crawford. I am caring for my two grandchildren. My husband is on chemotherapy. They return to school. Should I continue watching them? I am not sure my daughter can find other child care options. Well, th this is uh, the difficulty of the time we live in. Um, Obviously, the children, depending on their age, are probably not uh, vaccinated, uh, and they are at risk um, of developing COVID and uh, being able to spread that. Uh, um, so the, the, the most important thing for the grandfather would be to be sure that he has received his vaccination and the booster to minimize his risk, and for the children to make sure that, that uh, the schools they're in have some active program of surveillance. M many schools have weekly testing now uh, and other systems to at least reassure us that the risk is minimal. But I, I think obviously you need to, if you, if you need, if you have childcare and a grandfather to look after, I think you need to do the best with both situations and balance them. And should the caregiver also get um, a vaccine oh, yes. for COVID? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, good point. The, the, the caregiver is particularly uh, in the middle of this so that they should be uh, fully vaccinated, hopefully with a booster as well, um, if they're eligible and, and uh, frequent, uh, well, I guess, low, low uh, threshold for 
getting COVID testing with, with any kind of symptoms they may develop. And I'm, I'm going to add in, what about flu? Do they all get, uh, should they be, I guess, with their doctors, uh, but the flu shots as well, whatever shots that they should be getting, pneumonia, um, whatever, depending on their age? Right. I, I, I think um, I think the, uh, the, flu, the flu vaccine and obviously the other vaccines as appropriate, Dr. Cable may have some comments about that. Thank you. Dr. Cable, do you want to add to that? Uh, yes, so absolutely. Um, right now, the, the COVID-19 vaccine and most vaccines are approved um, age 18 and older. Um, I, I practice predominantly in the adult realm, so I'm not as familiar and up-to-date on the pediatric vaccination um, scheduling, uh, but making sure that, uh, you know, your child is up-to-date is going to be the most important for sure, and uh, communicating with the pediatrician is extremely important. Um, I, I find that our primary care doctors and pediatricians act as kind of the quarterback for, for calling the different vaccine scheduling um, and keeping everything in one location. Um, so I think that's extremely important um, to, to involve them in the care and making sure that uh, all the vaccines are not being missed. Thank you. And um, so we, we actually could go on for quite some time. There are so many questions, but we're going to conclude. And I just want to, as we conclude, I'm going to ask each of our speakers if they would just give a takeaway point <laughs> that they'd like to have people to take away from today's call. So I'm going to start with Dr. Crawford. If there's something you would like people to take away from today's call, that would be very helpful. Yeah, I think, uh, well, first, uh, thanks to everyone for joining our program today. I hope we all learned. I, I learned something today, so hopefully you all did too. Um, the, uh, I would say the, the COVID-19 has really changed our concern about infection for, for the good. And I think that, I hope, is something that will stay with us for a long time. I'm hoping we won't all have to do masks and social distancing forever, but I think it is going to change our threshold for that. And I think uh, with hand washing, with masks, we've seen a much reduced risk of flu, for example, compared to previous years. So, so clearly there are other benefits from being cautious uh, that will benefit us in the long term. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and Dr. Um, uh, Satlin? Yeah, well, first I'll echo Dr. Crawford's. It's, it's really been great to be here. I, I also have learned things. Um, and uh, I think my take home would be the importance of uh, using antibiotics appropriately. Uh, so using antibiotics where we really think there may be a bacterial infection and not a viral infection. And the best way to do that is really working closely with your doctor to um, uh, make sure that uh, you're being evaluated uh, carefully and, 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 and that you are uh, getting specimens that, that they may need to collect in order to determine whether you have a bacterial infection and not just taking antibiotics for a runny nose or things where um, the chances that it is a bacterial infection are, are extremely low. And that's uh, one thing that we all can do to prevent uh, uh, worsening of the problem of antimicrobial resistance, which can affect all of us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And um, Dr. Capel. And, and thank you again for including me as well in this conversation. Um, my take-home point would be the importance of vaccines and making sure that um, each and every one of us, whether we're the cancer patient, survivor, or caregiver, are staying up to date on all of our vaccines, whether it's the annual influenza vaccine or whether it's the COVID-19 um, 
the primary schedule of our, the vaccines or even the booster or second or the third shot, excuse me. Um, making sure that we're, you know, filling the gaps of the type of infections that we can't prevent uh, with uh, all the measures that both Dr. Crawford and Dr. Satland have mentioned extensively of, you know, the day-to-day -day activities that we can do. Um, there are some gaps there, and so hopefully the vaccines will fill those gaps to further reduce the risk of infection, especially in our uh, vulnerable patients, um, such as cancer patients that have a compromised immune system. So I think that's that's the biggest take-home point that I hope um, everyone uh, was able to to receive after this, this presentation. Oh, thank you so much. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. It's been an amazing program today. Um, our speakers are terrific. Our participants have been terrific, asking such really great questions. And again, I know we could go on all afternoon. So I, I just, in fairness to all of you, I just want to kind of wrap this up. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who still have a question to ask or have thought of another question, we do want you to go back to your treating healthcare team. And we hope with what you've learned today, take that back to your healthcare team and see how all of this applies to your specific situation. It's really important to do that. Um, and I hope that um, this will be very useful to you going forward, um, both for yourself and your family members and for those who you care a great deal about. Um, also, um, I do want to remind all of you that um, there are many services you can access for free from cancer care um, and um, that we also, when we send you the survey monkey, you'll be getting also the services from Cancer Care, but also any, any information we gave out today, a website, a telephone number, um, any of that information, we will be sending to you um, additional information. So it's not only an evaluation, but it's also an extension of today's program, um, some additional information that you'll be able to have. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with cancer, with uh, the topic of today's program, with any of the issues that you may be dealing with. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support, starting with your healthcare team. Your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines, all of whom can be very helpful to you. So you've heard today about some of the disciplines on that team, um, and there are many others that can be of help to you. And if you're having financial issues, your healthcare team can help with that. We can, Cancer Care can help with that, and we can direct you to organizations that can help with that. So please be aware that there's a lot of services out there for you. It is very tempting to feel very alone in today's world, but we want you to know that, and that's a normal feeling to have, but we want you to feel that you can take advantage of these services and connect with others and get help, either practical help or joining one of our online support groups or joining one of our community um, programs that we have listed on our website that you might find very useful as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.